Good evening, or maybe for some of you, good morning, (laughs) my friends, and welcome to another episode of Terror Radio Podcast. If this is your first time joining me, then welcome. This is a podcast dedicated in bringing you the best of horror and thriller, old-time radio broadcast, as well as original stories. I am your host, Keith, a.k.a. The Radio Show Nerd, and tonight's episode is entitled, Playing With Fire. Hence, our first story, um, let's just say, Desire Goes Amuck. As with our second story, Affairs, literally, of the heart, have, um, let's just say, fatal consequences. So... Without further ado, this is Terror Radio. The two radio series highlighted tonight are Quiet Please and Price of Fear. Our first radio play is called Whence Came You? And it was first broadcasted on Quiet Please, February 16th, 1948. Following that is the radio play Fish. And this was first broadcasted on Price of Fear, October 20th, 1973. So, you all know the drill. Sit back, turn down the lights, and listen to Whence Came You, followed by Fish. Quiet, please. Quiet, please. Broadcasting System presents Quiet, Please, which is written and directed by Willis Cooper and which features Ernest Chappell. Quiet, Please, for tonight is called Whence Came You? I came from Jerusalem. I've traveled in the East a good deal in the last 20-odd years, and I flatter myself that I know my way around. So when I got off the plane at Cairo, I didn't start for the camp right away as a good storybook archaeologist would have done. I made a beeline for Shepherds in the room I'd left a couple of days before when I went to Jerusalem. The bath, the gin and tonic, and the large batch of mail from the States. <laughs> what more can a man ask? In Cairo on a hot night? But of course it was too good to last. I'm just going to let him knock. Austin, wake up. Now, who the... Hey, it's Abe Feldman. Abe Feldman? Hey! Hi, Austin. <laughs> Regards from State Matters. Well, I'll be darned. Come <laughs> on in. What are you doing here? <laughs> what do you got there? I do get around, don't I? <laughs> this, this is gin and tonic. How are you? Well, I'm fine, but come in. <laughs> well, sit down. You're the last man in the world that I... Here, take a gin and tonic before I drop it. <laughs> Well, Lachaim. Lachaim in spades, Abe. <sighs> By golly, I'm glad to see you, boy. I'm glad to see you. I've been looking here for three days waiting for you to come back. Hey, you look skinnier. Will you go out and dig holes out there for six months, lad? You'll take off some of that fat, too. <laughs> Me, fat? <laughs> go away, you're kidding. Well, get your shirt on and let's go see the town. Sit down. <laughs> come on, what you doing here? <sighs> business. Yeah, what kind of business? Newspaper business, Natch. What's cooking in the Middle East and stuff? <clears throat> Say, uh, how do you get more of these things? We'll get on the bar in a minute. They're colder down there. Well, go on, go on. Tell me about it. Well, you know, Eddie Heffercamp just called me in and said, draw some dough and go east and send up some stuff for the Sunday feature section. The trip's making a monkey out of us again. So I remember the dear old days on the Midway, you and me, and you're around here, so... Let's go see the town, huh? Well, I'll be darned. When would you leave Chicago? Day before yesterday. Oh, boy. Yep, 
The loop's still there. They still got the Burlicue shows on South State Street. The Michigan Avenue Bridge is always up. The Cubs are in seventh place. Now? Now what? Now we go see the town? Come on, put on your pants. <laughs> You've never been in Cairo before, have you? Me? Not me. Why? Well, if you had, you wouldn't care much about seeing it, my boy. Yeah? Yeah. But, uh, women. You had a good look at any of them? <laughs> Have I? Oh, boy. <laughs> what? <laughs> the one that's waiting for you downstairs. Waiting for me? Wow. What are you talking about? I don't know any women in Cairo. Well, there's one who knows you. Why, you're crazy. I'm telling you. How do you know? She's been waiting down there for three days. I've seen her. What's she look like? Oh, boy. Not a native. Cleopatra. Is this one of your bum jokes, Abe? I give you my word of honor. I don't get it. Come on downstairs and you will. So we went downstairs. British colonels, American traveling salesmen, Egyptian army officers. A thief or two, a bevy of the ugliest women in the world. And I don't see any woman waiting for me. There. By the door to the bar. And I looked. And there by the door stood the one most beautiful woman I have ever seen in all my life. She was no Egyptian native. She might have descended from one of the marvelously lifelike paintings of a queen of the Hathor dynasty that I've seen on the walls of tombs 2,000 years old. How can I describe her? Her eyes were black. Her hair was black and cut in the manner of the days of the shepherd kings that ruled the valley of the Nile a thousand years before the pyramids were built. Red lips that smiled at me slowly. I felt my knees tremble as she looked into my eyes. Come on, let's go ask her if she's got a friend. And when I looked back at her... Where'd she go? midnight, and then one o'clock, and two, and then three. We still walked the streets of Cairo, and the waning moon was rising in the northeast behind our shoulders as we turned our steps back to the hotel. Twice I thought I'd seen her, and twice she, if she it was, disappeared into a narrow winding street where we couldn't follow. No, I... Never followed women about the streets of a foreign city before, not in all my life. Well, there's little enough of that in the life of an archaeologist. The women we followed died a thousand, ten thousand years before we were born. We know them only by their portraits painted on the walls of a musty tomb. By what we find in great hermetically sealed stone caskets, wrapped in rust-colored linen and smelling of the ghost of cinnamon and myrrh and spikenard. I don't know why I did this. I know. She wanted you to come after her. Well, that's ridiculous, Abe. I heard her ask for you. Well, what would she want of me? <laughs> what does a pretty gal usually want of a guy? Drinks, something to eat, a good time? Well, she could have had that from anybody. Yeah, me, for instance. But she wanted you, Austin. Well, why? Maybe she's a spy or something. A spy? Maybe she wanted to sell you something. You know, you grave robbers... Maybe she knows where some old pharaoh or somebody is planted. Yeah, that could be, I suppose. Yeah, well, I'm for bed. I got to get out to the diggings early. Fine night we had. Yeah, forget it. You got a room, huh? Yeah, right down the hall. Well, knock on my door when you get up. All right. Good night. Night. Say, they uh, have this incense all the time around this place, huh? What do you mean? Don't you smell it? Smells like a funeral. I don't... Oh. Yeah, I suppose. Night. Night, Austin. I could have told him what the incense was. I've smelled cinnamon and myrrh and spikenard too often not to recognize it instantly. When I opened the door to my room, the smell was almost overpowering, used as I am to the funeral spices of ancient Egyptian tombs. No. No, I'm not going to tell you what a 
But a beautiful Egyptian princess of the days of Hyksos was waiting for me in the darkness. This isn't a ghost story. It's a true story. There wasn't anyone in the room. I turned on the lights, opened the window. There wasn't anyone in the room. So I went to bed, dreamed about sailing on Lake Michigan. The storm came up and the thunder cracked. And I was scared to death. Then I woke up and the thunder was the servant knocking on my door, bringing in my morning cup of tea. Abe and I got in my Jeep and rode out to the excavation. It's quite a distance from Cairo. But never mind just where it is, because that's my business. And the universities. That right rear tire went flat, just as I've been expecting. I forgot to put air in the spare, so we took quite a while getting it pumped up. It was late afternoon when we got there. Abe had never seen anything of this sort. You see, Abe, these places are built one on top of another. Almost every village and town in the east is. Mm, different periods of time, huh? Yeah, that's right. There may be any number of cities built above the ruins of another. All we do is dig out the top when you see, recover everything we can that's of historical importance, then go on carefully down to the next. What do you do with the stuff that's on top? It has to be destroyed, naturally. Oh, gee, that's too bad, ain't it? Well, we make careful records, photographs. And then you just peel off the stuff and go on to the next. That's right. This is the fourth city from the top we're working on now. Uh, see those big, that big pile of rubble over there? Yeah. That's the remains of the other three cities. Gee, that seems a shame. All those years of work and living and everything. Well, we save artifacts, of course. Uh, save what? You know, uh, things that people made. Pot shards, fragments of wall paintings, decorations, that sort of thing. Uh, what do you do with the people you find? People? Yeah. Oh, mummies. Uh, various things. We read the inscriptions. Decide whether the fellow is important enough to investigate further. The Egyptian government has a great deal to say about the contents of tombs, you know. Uh, find any gold? Not here so far, but we probably will. This part where we're standing was the necropolis of this particular city. Uh-huh. The cemetery, you see. Oh, yeah. It's reasonable to suppose that there are other tombs under here. That's where you find the jewels and the golden stuff? Mm, generally, yes. Uh, say, Austin, why don't you get a steam shovel in here? You'd move this stuff a lot quicker. And probably smash some priceless inscriptions or paintings into bits. No, my boy, we do this gently. Uh-huh. And you can read this stuff, huh? The hieroglyphics? Hieroglyphics comes from two Greek words originally meaning carving by priests. Okay, Professor. Can you read it? Yeah, of course. I can read a good deal of the later writings by sight when we get down to the real ancient stuff. That's a little more difficult. Uh, what does this say? What? Uh, this slab here. Yeah, let's see. Uh, here was I, Hotep, presented with a... Well, I guess you'd say invested with the working tools of those who build... In my hand, I, Hotep, did take, uh, took, the tools of the second uh, grade of workmen in stone, the uh, plum, the square, and the... The level, huh? How'd you know? There were masons in those days. Well, sure. How do you think they built all this stone stuff? Hey, look at that. What's that there? Uh, it's a name. Uh, Sholem. Uh, it's probably Solomon. Yeah, this was in Solomon's time. Uh, right alongside the name. The middle stone of an arch, which is secret. The keystone. These fellas didn't know how to build an arch. Well, that's right, they didn't. Why are you so excited about it, though? Hey! What? Look at that. This? Yeah, that's a very fine example of wall painting. Look how the colors are still bright. Look how they... Yeah. You see the same thing I see, don't you? You know what I saw. 
You know whose portrait was painted on the edge of the slab that came from a tomb that was old in the time of Augustus Caesar? Coincidence or not, here was the face of the woman who waited for me the night before in Shepherd's Hotel. It's amazing how racial characteristics persist through centuries in Egypt. I have seen Egyptian men who might have been Tutankhamun's own brother. I've seen women, but you wouldn't blame me for feeling my hackles rise a little at this uncanny resemblance to the woman who disappeared. I kept smelling myrrh and spikenard and cinnamon. But I hadn't much time to think of it then. Martin Weaver, who was in charge of the actual excavation, came up behind us. Well, I'm glad you're back, Orson. Well, hello, Martin. How are we doing? Uh, Zabe Felden, Martin Weaver. Oh, yeah. Hello. Well, day before yesterday, we broke through a place, Austin, that goes down to the city underneath this one. You did? Yeah, one of the workmen found a big sandstone slab, and we cleared it away completely. I've got the big shears rigged over it now, and I thought we'd wait till you got here to lift the slab. Um... Uh, you want to do it tonight or what? Oh, gosh, let's do it now, Austin. Well, what do you think? It's getting dark. Let's have a look at it. Okay. Well, I'm glad you're back. Uh, bring anything to drink with you? We walked half a mile. There was a little clearing at one corner of the necropolis, and the beams of the shears stood stark against the darkening sky. There was something elemental, something deathly about them. It's not an archaeologist's job to be sentimental or superstitious. None of us would stay on the job very long if we were. But the half-inch steel cable was attached to a block of stone was the only thing that separated us from something that happened perhaps 40 centuries ago. And, well, there are times when a man's entitled to shiver a little in the wind that rises over the desert at sunset. Abe was beside himself with excitement. Let's pull it up, Austin. Go on, let's pull it up, huh? Go ahead, Martin. Okay. Glad we got the engine. That slab weighs about 70 tons. Go ahead. A little higher. Gosh. <coughs> the air from down there. <coughs> That air you're breathing, Abe, was breathed by pharaohs long before Moses let his people out of this country. Gee. Okay, hold it, Martin. Right. Uh, you, you going down there, Austin? Tomorrow. Oh, not now? No, no, it's late. Oh, gee, I'd like to go down there. We will in the morning. Uh, how is it? Let's take your flashlight. Yeah. Hmm? yeah. Mummy case, some wall paintings. Let me see. Take the flashlight. Oh, Boy, oh boy. It isn't far down there. I'm going to jump down. No, 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 wait. Don't do that. I'll be all right. Now, don't go running all over that place, tracking it up, Abe. I won't, boy. It's dark down here. Get a ladder, Martin. Yeah, okay. You hear me, Abe? I hear you. Throw me your flashlight. it. that's the last time you... Here. Now, stand still. I'm standing still. Hey, Austin. What? There's a picture on the wall. What picture? Over here on the wall. Oh, darn it. I dropped the light. Well, stand still. Martin will be back in a minute with his light. Austin. What? There's something in here. Well, be careful. It might be a snake. No, it, it ain't a snake. It... Ah! Abe. Abe. Abe, what happened? Look out, Austin! Look out, the slab! We worked all night long, Martin and I, splicing that steel cable and raising the heavy slab that had imprisoned Abe in that place of the dead. We had no hope, but what could we do? A miracle might have happened. There might have been a chink between the slab and the opening it covered, an opening through which a few breaths of air might have seeped into the tomb. The snake might not have bitten him. He might have killed it. So we told each other all through the night. The stubborn cable cut our hands and defied our every effort. The sun was just rising when we at last had made it fast, and Martin started the engine. We'd fastened the rope onto the cable, 
and we swung the great stone slab aside. I was down in the tomb almost before it had cleared the opening. It was too late. I nearly sickened as I called to Martin. He jumped down, too. Oh, my good... What happened to him? I thought it was a snake. No snake did that. No. I saw a pigeon once that a hawk had been at. We... We'd have been too late even if the slab hadn't fallen. Well... Austin. What? That mummy case. Was the cover off it last night when you looked down here? No. Why, Abe couldn't have. That lid weighs ten tons. Then we looked down into the stone coffin. I hope I shall never see the like of that again. Look. What is it? The mummy of a man. A tall man in a robe of gold cloth. Not wrapped in linen bindings, just a robe of gold cloth with strange symbols woven into the cloth. And his head. Not a man's head. The head of a hawk. No, not a mask. We look carefully. A man with a head of a hawk. And the hawk's beak, all dabbled with red. I didn't believe it either. It couldn't be. But it was. It was the father of all the Egyptian gods, Osiris. Osiris, the brother-husband of Isis, the founder of the world's first empire. Osiris, who was murdered 16,000 years ago. And his body was hidden by Isis, his wife, with a blasting curse on any who might find his tomb. It was impossible. It couldn't be. But there it was. And Martin and I and a dead man were there in his tomb with him. And the curse hung heavy in the musty air around us. And then the first rays of the sun reflected from something above us stole down into the tomb. And I saw the pictures on the wall. I saw Osiris with his hawk's head. And the robe he wore and the mitre on his hawk's head was the same that the mummy wore in the casket. I saw Isis, his wife, weeping over the body of her murdered husband. And the beauty of the work of the long-dead artist was unbelievable. And I saw another picture. There was the daughter of Isis and Osiris. Yes. Yes, of course I could read the inscriptions. Yes. Of course I could recognize her face. I'd seen it before. In the lobby of Shepherd's Hotel. And the inscriptions on the wall were terrifying. There were secrets there that men would give their lives to possess today. There were secrets there that we've only begun to imagine today. I'm a scientist, I know. Or do I? We forgot the thing in the coffin. We, we forgot the thing on the floor. And it grew darker and darker in the tomb. And I read on and on. I stood before the painting of the one who was Osiris' daughter. Long black hair. Red lips that smiled at me. And my heart stopped at the inscription under the portrait. I read it over again. Be not afraid. Ah. Tin. Carved into the living rock in the ancient heretic characters uncounted centuries ago. Not by the hand of the artist. I knew who had carved my name there. Be not afraid, Austin. 
And I wasn't afraid at all when I discovered that the thing that was making it dark down there was a great slab of sandstone slowly swinging around and down to imprison us all in the tomb that the wife of Osiris had cursed. Martin Weaver was a very brave man. Martin Weaver didn't scream and cry in the heavy dark. Martin Weaver talked to me quietly. It'll be all right, Austin. The workmen will be here before long, and they'll see the slab, and Ibrahim knows how to run the engine. I hope so, Martin. I hope they'll be in time. They'll be in time. He'll start the engine and pull the thing off all right. I hope so, Martin. Sure. They'll know that something's wrong. Where are you? Right here. Well, stand still. I am standing still. I thought I heard you move. No. You afraid, Austin? Are you? Not particularly. But I... Yes. Well, the thing in the... Where are you going? I haven't moved. I thought I felt your hand on my arm. No. Sit still. Don't use up the air. Well, do sit still. I tell you, I didn't move. Something's moving. It couldn't be. Austin? What? <sighs> Martin. 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 Answer me, Martin. And there was nothing but silence. And then another footstep. And I felt a hand on my arm and I screamed with terror. But it was a gentle hand, and it led me gently away from where I stood in the dark. And I followed. I hit my head on a solid stone wall. My feet dragged as I followed whoever it was through a door that I knew couldn't be there. And a voice breathed in my ear. Austin. And I smelled cinnamon and myrrh and spike and heart. And I followed on. And soon there was a glimmering of light ahead of me, and I felt the hand release my arm. And I walked on toward the light. Then, in a little while, another little room hewn out of the solid rock and a light burning. A little bronze lamp at the head of a mummy case of lacquered painted wood. And the portrait image on the lid of the sarcophagus. The same face. The smile. And I came closer to read the inscription I knew would be there. An inscription put there so many, many years ago. I have freed you, Austin. Now free me. My hand went to the fastening of the lid. When I looked up to the wall above, the portrait again, but with a difference. The same costume, the same jewelry. The same headdress. But the head was the head of a hawk. The head of Osiris' daughter. So I sit here, and the little bronze lamp is flickering low. No. I haven't opened the coffin. I'm afraid to. Next week's Quiet Please 
Here is my good friend, our writer-director, Willis Cooper. I've got a story for you next week called Put on the Dead Man's Coat. It's about a man who had an idea that wasn't good for him. Put on the Dead Man's Coat. The title of next week's Quiet, Please. And so until next week at this time, I am quietly yours, Ernest Chappell. Quiet, please, comes to you from New York. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Vincent Price. Hello there. Do you like fish? To eat, I mean, not to look at or catch. Well, I do. I am, in fact, one of the world's most compulsive piscivores. I find there is an almost ritual purity about fish. The Japanese, you know, eat their fish raw, shredding and flaking the flesh and dipping it into piquant sauces, soya, horseradish, that sort of thing. The effect can be delicious, a delicate point and counterpoint, air and descant, plucking at the palate. The taste can be exquisite, and yet if you should think too hard about those raw, gelatinous strips of fish... You may find the feel of them, the sight of them even, is somehow obscene. But then my attitude in these matters is colored by a most unnerving experience I underwent in Australia. I'll call this story simply Fish, because as each stage of the episode unfolded, it was impressed on my memory by some piscatorial piece of gastronomic delight. It started in a Sydney restaurant about five years ago with a dozen of the celebrated rock oysters with lemon and cayenne pepper and all the usual trimmings. I was lunching with a young Australian, Greg Rossmark, an aspiring actor who wanted to come to work in London. We were just debating whether another half dozen would be sheer bliss or pure greed when suddenly... Vincent... It is Vincent, isn't it? Vincent Price? Well, yes, yes. Jane Willemsey? I don't suppose you remember. But we did once actually work on a, a film together. Well, yes, I, I believe I do remember. It, it was a long time ago. At Elstree, wasn't it? That's right. I strangled you. Yes. Oh, what a charming fellow. Oh, but I only strangle <laughs> the nicest people. <laughs> Sorry, Jane. Let me introduce you to Greg, Greg Rossmark. He's also an actor. An eminently unsuccessful one. Hello. How do you do? Won't you join us? No, no, thank you very much. I must be going. Are you uh, working over here now, Miss uh, Willemsey? In the theatre, I mean. Oh, no. No, the theatre gave me up for dead, right after Vincent strangled me. <laughs> well, I, I can't believe that I was that realistic. <laughs> oh, it was probably just symbolic of something or other. Don't you miss it, the uh, theatre? Maybe. But you can't have everything, can you? Sure you won't join us, though. There seems so much we might talk about. No, no, really I can't. Richard's already waiting at the table, and he's due to start glowering any moment now. Oh, that's a shame. Look, how long are you here for? Oh, just a week or so. I start filming in Hong Kong at the end of the month. Uh, why don't you come over to lunch with us on Sunday? Well, I... We're only over at Manly, and I'm a much better cook than I ever was an actress. 
<laughs> well, um, I'd uh, love to come. Oh. Well, very well, then we'll both come. Oh, oh well, fine. <laughs> well, uh, it's number six, Sandy Avenue. It's right Sandy on the beach. You can't miss us. All right, till Sunday, then. Any time after 12? We'll be there. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> Lovely woman. I do apologise, Vincent. Whatever for? Warning in on your invitation like that, it uh, obviously threw you. Well, I suppose it did. I just wasn't expecting it somehow. No, neither was she. I was uh, I was trying to stampede you into accepting. Well, you succeeded admirably. I, I don't see why, though. Well, I thought that you were going to refuse. Well, would that have been so disastrous? Not to you, maybe, but it... Uh, it might have been... To her. But I don't see how it could have been. I haven't seen her for years, and I barely knew her even then. Yes, I know, I know, but there's just something about her. It's, uh... Well, it's sort of difficult to put your finger on, but... The eyes were out of phase with the voice. All the while she was talking, the eyes looked, um... Well, they looked hunted. Oh. Come on, Greg, don't let your imagination run away with you. Imagination be damned. Imagination? What is imagination? A mental trick. A simple piece of sleight of mind that projects facts into fantasy. Or fantasies into fact. Anyway, the following Sunday, Greg picked me up at my hotel and drove us out across the Sydney Harbour Bridge towards the North Shore and Manly. The other day in the restaurant, Vincent, when Jane Willemsey introduced herself, uh, did you really remember her right off just oh, like that? Yes, yes. She wasn't the sort of woman you'd forget easily, especially after her performance in that film. Was she good? In it, very good. On it, positively scandalous. Are you serious? Oh, yes, quite literally so. She brought the picture to a grinding halt about halfway through the schedule. <laughs> well, how'd she manage that? She ran off with the director. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah, she took off just like that. Left us, her husband, everybody flat and just took off. <laughs> Believe me, it was no laughing matter. Oh, it couldn't have been. <laughs> well, at least it wasn't at that time. <laughs> We had to get a new director in and a new lady for me to strangle. And we reshot every scene that Jane had been in. Oh, it was an absolute nightmare. And, uh... And what happened to her, Jane? Well, she just disappeared. They both did. Off the set, out of the business, off the face of the earth, for all I knew. Her husband hired some inquiry agents to find them, and for a few weeks we were all up to our ears in private eyes. <laughs> I sometimes wonder why he bothered. It could hardly have come as a surprise to him, not with a woman like that. A woman like, uh, what? Well, she was younger then, of course, a lot more arrogant. She seemed to generate a sort of, uh, sexual electricity. She had an almost animal magnetism that could devastate a man. I'll tell you something, Vincent. Right. She still got it. I wonder what her husband's like. Well, more important, I wonder if he's a film director. <laughs> or, or even an ex-film director. <laughs> I guess we'll soon find out. We did, and he wasn't a film director. Jane's husband turned out to be a broker on the Sydney Stock Exchange. But even that turned out to be more of a sideline. His real occupation was swimming, surfing, yachting, all the classic activities of the professional outdoor type. Richard was a good outdoor cook, too. And what he could do with an open fire was beyond belief. It's coming on nicely. Won't be long, Vincent. You always eat al fresco like this, Richard? <laughs> uh, we only make a thing of it at the weekend. Well, I can think of worse ways of passing the time. I'll race you back. Right, uh, you're up. Come on. Nice to see Jane enjoying herself so much. God. I'm exhausted. Uh, I'm not surprised. <laughs> the surf takes it out of you. Especially when you're not used to it. Greg was... Oh. He was teaching me to ride the surf. <laughs> yes. 
I saw. Greg, what's that mark on you? What? Where? Out there on your leg. Oh, oh, that, that's a birthmark. Oh, I'm sorry. It's all right. It's almost a family crest. Oh. It occurs at least once in every generation in our family. What, always in the same place? No, but it's usually on an arm or a leg somewhere, and it's always, but always, the same shape. What? You see? An open rose. Oh, yes. <laughs> now you pointed out, it is like a rose. My uncle, my grandfather, theirs were identical. That's extraordinary. How, how far does that go back? Well, you see, my family's name is uh, Rosmark, and oh. I suppose originally it was uh, Rosemark, but, uh, well, God knows when that started. Yeah. Oh, that really does smell delicious, Richard. It's coming on. What is it inside the tinfoil, I mean? Hmm? It's a whole baked tie. Is that uh, that fish that looked like a snapper? In fact, it is a snapper, but uh, I always call it tie if I'm doing a Japanese style. There's no great difference anyway. Uh, I thought the Japanese always ate their fish raw. This is one case where they don't. It, it really is very good eating. Richard carves it off in great chunks and you dip it in the shoyu sauce. Well, I can hardly wait. Tell me, where on earth did you learn to cook food Japanese style, Richard. Oh. I find any style of cooking absolutely fascinating. Uh, we were taught this by a party of Japanese stockbrokers that we took fishing. Hmm? What, what sort of fishing? Tuna, barracuda, marlin, if you're lucky. Oh, the big game bit, huh? Richard has his own boat down the coast at Bermagui. We charter it out most of the time, but uh, we reserve a few odd weeks for ourselves. You go fishing, Jane? No. He prefers to stay here. Hmm. I can imagine. It must be a far cry from Elstree to Bermagui. Don't drag all that up, Rothmark, for Pete's sake. Drag all what up? The theatre, the bright lights and all that crap. She's much better off where she is. Aren't you, Jane? Yes. Did, uh, did you two know each other before, uh... Before uh, what? Well, before... Before Jane gave up the theater. Why, why, yes, of course. I married her when she was still a, a drama student. And in the end, it was me who made her give it all up. Wasn't it, darling? I could hardly believe it. This was the husband that she had left on her runaway romance. What could have happened... Had he found her, or had she come back to him? And what about the flyaway film director? What had happened to him? <laughs> well, when I got back to London, I mentioned his name around a few times to see if I got any response. I didn't. People remembered him, but no one had seen or heard of him since he had run off with that uh, actress, as they put it. <laughs> They'd both run off, of course, but only Jane had come back. I wondered, so dark a thought, so dark a thought, it lodged unnoticed in the shadows of my memory until last year, when I went back to Australia, back to Sydney. Perhaps it was the same unnoticed thought that made me phone the one-time Jane Willemsey and her husband and to invite them both to dinner. I remember the occasion well. We had a quite extraordinary Australian hock with a quite excellent lobster a la Morica. How long will you be in Australia this time, Vincent? Oh, only a few more days, then I go to Japan for eight weeks of filming. Might come back here after that, though, just for a short vacation trip. Oh, well, then you must come up to stay with us in Brisbane. It'd be lovely to Brisbane? see you. Brisbane? Yes. Uh, didn't Richard tell you? But tell me what, Richard? We're moving house. To, to Brisbane? Uh, just outside, actually. But why? Richard has decided to retire. Retire? That's a bit premature, Richard. Surely you must be at least 20 years Yes, but there's no point in waiting till you're too old to enjoy yourself, is there now? Well, what would you do in Brisbane? Fish. Mostly. 
I've sold my business interests here in Sydney and invested in a couple of boats. Uh, powerful engines, properly fitted out, you know, chair, rods, harpoons, flotation barrels, a lot. We can take anything. Sailfish, black marlin, or the big sharks, the tigers and the great whites. Yes, but why do you go all the way up to Brisbane? I mean, why not stay in Bermagui? That was Richard's decision. The uh, charter rates are much higher up in Queensland. Oh. Better fishing all the year round, too. Richard's going to skip one of the boats himself. Well, what will you do, Jane? I'm sure there'll be a great deal to keep me occupied. Uh, you'll probably enjoy it once you get settled in. We'll see. Have you seen Greg? Greg? Oh, Greg Rossmark, you mean. Now, now uh, did he ever go to London? You know, I gave him my address and everything and... No, he didn't go. Why not? Well, who can tell with a bloke like that? Have you seen anything of him recently? No. Yes. Uh, not recently. Uh, how is he? Fine. Is he working? Uh, no, no. Um, he, he gave up the theatre. After dinner, I saw them to their car with a promise that I would visit them in Brisbane on my return from Japan. I watched them out of sight and turned to walk down to my hotel in the cool night air. Suddenly, I became quite chillingly aware that someone was walking almost at my shoulder, following me. I found myself looking for his reflection in the glass of the shop windows. I saw a suit that had once been smart, but the face was turned undeviatingly away from the reflection, looking no staring. I could feel it staring at me. The compulsion to run was overwhelming, but so was the feeling that he would run after me. I stopped. Suddenly I had to turn and face him out. Vincent. It is Vincent, isn't it? Vincent Price. Yes. Do you remember me? Greg. Greg. With the rose mark on his leg. Greg. Greg Rossmark, of course, I hardly recognized you. Huh. Uh, are you all right? Let's just say that I'm uh, sort of sick. You were with her, weren't you? You mean Jane? Yes, I, I've just had dinner with her and Richard. Yes, I saw you. Did she mention me? Well, she said she hadn't seen you recently. No, no. He won't let her, not since he found out found out. Uh, well, is that why you never went to England? <laughs> yes. It uh, happened again. You see, we are... Uh, uh, you wouldn't understand. You mean you ran away together? No. Everything but that, funnily enough. She wouldn't come with me. She... She was frightened. Frightened of what? Of him, of course. She's terrified of him. Uh, then, when he found out about us, she refused to see me again. She sends my letters back unopened. Every time I phone, she uh, bursts into tears and uh, keeps saying, well, moaning, stay away, for God's sake, uh, stay away from me. Oh, the way she says it, uh, it tears the heart out of you. And I... No, it's it's not what she wants to say. I can tell. But Greg, maybe she's right. Oh, no, otherwise uh, he, he wouldn't be taking her away from here, far away where he thinks I won't follow. <laughs> well, he's wrong. You can tell him from me that he's wrong. I'll follow... Wherever he takes her, I'll follow to the ends of the earth, if need be. You tell her that, will you? To the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth. He shuffled off backwards into the night until the shadows seemed to engulf him completely, leaving me with only the recollection of the desperation in his eyes and the strained 
emotion of his voice. As I turned into my hotel, I knew that I would need a vacation after my work in Japan had finished, knew that I wanted to try my hand at big game fishing. And so, nine weeks later, I found myself on the open patio of Jane and Richard's new house, eating homemade croissant and drinking fresh ground coffee in the pale sunshine of an early morning in Queensland. Like some more coffee, Vincent? Oh, please. And, by the way, I congratulate you on your croissant. They're delicious. I don't know how you can face the day with just that inside of you. It's a woman's breakfast. Well, I certainly couldn't face a day at sea with a stomach full of bacon, sausage, eggs. <laughs> and tomato. Ooh. Don't forget the tomato. It keeps the corpuscles coming the right color. At least that's what my old granny used to say. Well, mine said they gave you appendicitis. Have you ever been fishing before, Vincent? <laughs> no. No, I never seem to have had the time. And I've never been convinced that I had the patience. I, I know what you mean, but... Um... This is nothing like ordinary angling. You see, you don't just sit around and wait for the fish to come. You have to go out and look for them. Well, you have to know where to look, presumably. Well, I seem to know where to look for shark. Richard's landed more sharks in the past fortnight than anyone can remember. He's making quite a name for himself. What's, uh, uh, what kind of sharks do you get in these waters? Oh, all the worst sorts, sir. Or best sorts, according to your point of view. Tigers... Mako, hammerheads. I've even taken a couple of whites. Uh, small ones, of course, but... But even the small ones are man-eaters. Well, what happens if you meet a big one? <laughs> I think you've got a fight on your hand. <laughs> that could be real sport. Uh, yes. Well, I'll, uh, I'll just go and load up oh, I'll car. give you a hand. Uh, Richard will see to it. You, you finish your coffee in peace. Uh, yeah, you, you stay put. I know where everything goes. Vincent, I... What? I don't know. I, I wanted to ask you something. Ask. Have you seen anything of Greg? I saw him that night that I had dinner with you both in Sydney. Not since then? No. Why? D did he say anything about me? Well, he did say he'd follow you. Follow me here? Anywhere. To the ends of the earth. That's what he said. Oh, God, no, not again. What's the matter? He's here. He's in Brisbane. You've seen him? Oh, he phoned me. Well, when was that? Uh, two... N no, n nearly three weeks ago. And you haven't heard from him since? No. I, I told him to keep away, to go back to Sydney and forget me. Well, perhaps he did. Do you really think so? Do you? No. Come on, Vincent. Time to get moving. Why didn't you come, Jane? There's only us two fishing. You could try your hand. No, thanks. Anyway, I want to go into town today. What for? Well, uh, you need more socks for a start. And maybe another shirt. Oh. Yeah, okay. Drive carefully. I will. Have a good day. You too, Vincent. Have a good day, have a good week, have a good year, have a good life. What does it mean? As if you can wish anything on anyone, or induce even the most marginal change in patterns of events that have been irrevocably precast in the unyielding concrete of too many yesterdays. A good day it was, then, in the sense that the sky was blue and the sun was warm and the swell of the ocean was at its most pacific. Good boat and a good crew in the shape of Jack, a laconic ex-swagman from the Northern Territories. All it needed was good fish. I wish that had been all we'd got. Patience, Mr. Price. That's what's needed out here. But they're not biting today, Jack. They will. They always do. Give the bag another bang, Jack. Right up. What is that thing? A dubby bag. <coughs> a bee bag. Yeah, just hang it over the side of the boat and oh. it leaves a trail behind you for miles. As soon as anything finds it, it turns and follows it 
Right onto the hook. Uh-huh. <laughs> At least that's the theory. <laughs> what have you got inside it? It's what we call chum. That's a sort of a polite way of saying smelly bits of fish and meat and awful. Especially awful. Anything that'll lose blood and oil into the water. Yeah, <laughs> you're beginning to sound like a film, I know. <laughs> fish don't know that, do they? They just follow their noses. Well, I wonder what'll turn up today. Shark. That's all he seems to be interested well, in. Well, he'll have to take what comes, though, won't he? I mean, he can't pick and choose. Well, he does. At least he seems to. Well, how can he? That's just not possible. You can't just whistle up which fish you want. No, but uh, you can take all the bait fish out of the dubby bag and just leave bloody meat in there. Then what you put into the water is not so much an oil slick as a blood trail. Uh-huh. That'll bring the sharks running. But, you know, Jack, I don't understand this obsession of his with sharks. I really don't. You can't say I do. Ah, they're not as good as marlin or sailfish. They don't have the heart. But the skipper's set on fighting the big, great white. Well, I only hope that's not a death wish. We've got a visitor, Jack. What's that? A big one. Who? What is it? Tiger. About ten foot of him. Oh. Better get into the chair, Mr. Price. Yes, sir. There we go. Right. Aria, he's circling for the Ooh, stripe. Steady. Yeah. Here he comes. Okay. Now let him run. He's only holding on to it yet. Uh-huh. Don't strike until he stops and starts to bite on it. Right. And strike hard and don't stop to pick the daisies. I'll tell you when. Okay. He's slow. Uh-huh. Wait for it. Uh-huh. He's turning. Now hit him. Here he this way it turned. <laughs> oh. What, what happened? The line broke. Oh. What was the breaking strain on that line? Yeah, around 1,000 pounds. Oh. There's some fish you had there, Vincent. Shall I rig another hook? Yeah, Jack, might as well. Well, do you think he's still around? Uh, depends if he's still got the hook in him. Hey! hey there he is. Where? Right under the stern. Oh. What's he doing that for? He's circling. Why? We've got nothing out. Here he comes. He's going to attack the boat. Hold on to something. Oh, he's crazy. He's mad as a bloody meat axe. Get the harpoon. I've got it. Get off. You crazy bastard. Get off. What the hell was all that about? (laughs) I've never known that happened before. Whatever it was, I'd prefer it not to happen again. Struth. He was after the dubby bag. What? See for yourself. We looked over the stern of the boat. The shark had indeed attacked the dubby bag. He'd torn over half of it away from its rope. The grisly, gory bait, or chum, as Jack called it, was already dispersing through the water. And then I saw the canvas, a shredded piece of the bag that had been torn away from the rest. It was floating precariously just below the surface of the water. On it was a piece of meat, a small piece of meat with a yellowish, bloodied skin. And on the skin was a mark, a distinctive mark in the shape of an open rose. Then the movement of the sea washed it off its canvas raft and committed it forever to the deep. Well, next time you eat fish, you may care to remember this little episode, but I hope it doesn't put you off. I'm uh, still a committed piscivore, with the single exception that I will never, never eat fish and chips in Australia. (laughs) Flake and chips, as they call it. It's a great favorite out there. But flake, of course, is shark meat. Goodbye. Bon appetit.
That was Vincent Price bringing you The Price of Fear with Bruce Beebe, Louis Fayander, Amanda Murray and Bill Kerr. This story, Fish, was first recounted and dramatised by Rennie Basilico and produced by John Dice. our show for tonight I want to thank you all for listening and remember you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash terror 1970 or you can find me on Instagram at radio show nerd I also have a YouTube channel terror radio please check it out subscribe like and share the videos will be highly appreciated again this is your host Keith better known as the Radio Show Nerd, signing off.